topic, the importance of the resurrection. We're going to look at the resurrection today, and it's a super important topic, and I'm going to read Matthew 28, 1-15. <clears throat> now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. <clears throat> and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept, while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And that is the lie that he did not rise, but his disciples stole his body away. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fundamental truth of the gospel and a cardinal doctrine of biblical Christianity. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you cannot be a Christian. All the gospels and their historical narratives with a climactic resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 21 and 20 and 21. In the gospel preaching that we have, and there's not a lot, but there's some really good sermons in the book of Acts, and of course there's summaries, the resurrection and exaltation of the Savior is emphasized. That's how Peter draws his sermon to a climax in the early chapters of Acts. Because it proves Christ is who he said he was. And we, in our scripture reading today in God's providence, uh, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And then they did not know he was, the disciples didn't know he was talking about the temple of his body. And then after he rose from the dead, that was his proof. And we'll see that in a second. <clears throat> it, the resurrection and lordship of the Messiah forms the climax of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 29 to 36. His preaching on Solomon's porch, Acts 3, 15 to 26. His speech to the Sanhedrin, Acts 4, 8 to 12. And his and the apostles' answer to the council, Acts 5, 31 to 32. The evangelist Stephen ends his defense before the Sanhedrin with the exaltation of Christ, Acts 7, 55-56. In the first sermon preached of the Gentiles, Peter said, And we are all witnesses of things which he did both, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's Acts 10, 39-41. When Paul preached in Antioch, after discussing the condemnation, crucifixion, and burial of Christ, Acts 13, 27 and 29, he focused on the resurrection, Acts 13, 30 to 37. Before his appeal to believe in, uh, believe in the Messiah, Acts 13, 38 to 41. 
Luke gives us a summation of Paul's preaching of the gospel, saying, this is Acts 17.3, and of course look at 30 to 32, Then Paul, as his custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ, the Messiah. It proves that everything Christ said was true. It proves that his atoning sacrificial death on the cross was accepted by the Father. It proves that the gospel is true. It proves everything that Christ said is true. In the epistles, the resurrection is also presented as a crucial aspect of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10.9 that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead if we are to be saved. You don't believe in the resurrection, you cannot be saved. The epistles teach that our regeneration is rooted in the Redeemer's resurrection. Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 15.45 and that he was raised because of our justification, Romans 4.24-25 and that our sanctification and application of redemption is dependent on our Lord's resurrection, Philippians 3.10. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, the apostle even says that if Jesus had not risen, then the preaching of the gospel was empty, void, vain, false, a waste of time, meaningless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the whole message of the gospel is false. And you're wasting your time. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. So it's that important. In this verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. So the resurrection is not an interesting epilogue to the, to the cross. It's not just an interesting epilogue. It is a crucial aspect of the gospel. If, if the, it is the exalted Savior, by the way, that applies salvation to his people, that intercedes on their behalf and judges the nations. Therefore, it will be of great value to study the resurrection. And I just want to say, <coughs> he's on the cross. Now, he had to die. He died a bloody sacrificial death. The wages of sin is death. Not just spiritual death. The fulpeterists are wrong, but also physical death. That's why the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they had to die, physically. But Christ, being the perfect sacrifice, could not be held by death, because he conquered death by his death. And John Owen has a great article on that. First, let's note the. this is one of the things that's most denied by liberals and secular humanists and so-called scientists today, is the resurrection of Christ. And so we're just going to say... Uh, look at some of the denials of it and just make a few comments before we uh, talk about the theological significance. Uh, one popular idea, which we just read, that was circulated by the Jews, and it's part of the Talmud now, it's part of modern Judaism, which is not a religion of the Bible, it's a religion of the Talmud. It's basically a religious cult masquerading as Old Testament Judaism. It's not. Old Testament Judaism, the central focus of it was the temple and blood sacrifices because blood sacrifice is the only way for sins to be expiated that is removed. It is the only way for men to be reconciled to God. It is the only way for God and men to have a relationship because the, the price for sin had to be paid. Modern Judaism teaches that you turn over a new leaf, you repent, you say you're sorry, you try to lead a good life, and that's how you become saved. That is not Judaism. That's not Old Testament religion. 
That's a heresy. That's salvation by the law. That's salvation by works. <clears throat> and of course, the idea that the uh, frightened disciples who were in hiding overpowered a bunch of Roman soldiers with swords and rolled a extremely... Those rocks, the way they were designed, uh, it took... A, it took uh, all kinds of things to get them to move. You couldn't get 12 disciples to move the giant stone uh, unless they were there for several hours with all kinds of equipment. So that, that idea, the, the, the Jewish lie about the, the resurrection being, him being stolen is, is a complete lie. You have to understand, Roman soldiers who were assigned to guard the tomb due to the, room, due to the fact that Jesus had been telling everybody that I'm going to rise, uh, if the way Roman law was, is if the body was stolen, those guys would be executed. And that's why the Jewish leaders had to pay off the authorities above those soldiers so the soldiers could lie without being executed. Two, another idea which is uh, popular among li theological liberals is the so-called swoon theory. And I, <laughs> I remember when I was a Buddhist, when I was young, I was a Buddhist for a while, and then I got into Hinduism. Uh, they all taught the swoon theory, and he didn't really die. He was he, he lost a lot of blood. He passed out, but he went, didn't really die. And then they took his body and they put him in a, that nice, cool tomb, and he revived. Well, how did he get out of the tomb? And of course, the, the gospels make it explicitly clear that he died. He hung on the cross for three hours. He was tortured before he hung on the cross, and the the torture that the Romans inflicted with the whips that had pieces of metal and bone in them. Those usually killed people. And then he was stabbed in the spear, with, uh, in the side of the spear that went into his heart, and out came blood and water. What's the significance of the blood and water? Well, the significance is after you die and your blood's not circulating anymore, immediately your red blood cells just start to fall. And so they were separated from the, the fluid. And if you've ever, I used to be a dead body delivery man, and I would go pick up dead bodies, and somebody who dies in their bed, and you, you, you roll them over, and the back of them's all purple from the blood falling, and of course, they're all, you know, a lot of times they're stiff. But uh, no, he, he really did die. Uh, the idea of the swoon theory is just complete nonsense. It's just made up, and it's trying to get away from the obvious fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The most popular theory uh, among modernists, or theological liberals, is the idea that the post office, and this is what, if you watch PBS or read Newsweek or Time magazine, when they talk about the resurrection, they're all going to say the same thing. Well, you know, the apostles made it up. It's part of Paul, especially Paul. They made it up long after Jesus was dead and buried uh, to exalt Christ. They all made it up <clears throat> in order to honor their Savior. In other words, they turned some Jewish rabbi who was basically, in their view, a liar and a lunatic, they turned him into a god. That's their view. <clears throat> and they'll say such platitudes as, although Jesus did not really rise from the dead, the resurrection story or myth has a deep metaphorical meaning that gives us spiritual strength and hope. Well, such assertions cannot detract from the fact that modernism, if you accept it, it teaches that the Bible's a myth, it's full of lies, Jesus was a liar, Jesus was a lunatic. His body is rotting in the grave. There is no salvation. And that is why modernist churches are dying out. They're losing thousands and thousands of people every year. Now they're full of sodomites and lesbians and all kinds of sex perverts and weirdos <clears throat> because they don't have the gospel anymore. And if you don't have the gospel, what's the point of going to church? You might as well go surfing. Get some good weed. 
uh, get some really good weed, maybe some edibles and a good six-pack of IPA, go to the beach and go surfing. Why bother going to church and waste your time listening to a bunch of nonsense? It's meaningless. <clears throat> and then, of course, Christ presented himself alive after his suffering. Uh, many infallible proofs seen by them, uh, that's Acts 1-3, he appeared to women who came to the grave, Matthew 28, 2 and 10, Mary Magdalene, John 20, 14 and 18, Peter, Luke 24, 34, the 11 in the absence of Thomas, John 20, 19, then eight days later to Thomas and the 11, so all of them, uh, well, it would make 11, John 21, 1, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 to 31, the seven fishing disciples, John 21, 1, the 11 in Galilee, Mark 28, 16 and following, the 500 brethren, 1 Corinthians 15.6, James, 1 Corinthians 15.7, the apostles at the ascension, Acts 1.9, Paul, Acts 9.17, 1 Corinthians 15.8, and John at Patmos, Revelation 1.1 and following, 1.11 and following. <coughs> and then, of course, there was the 500 who saw him. Probably would be when he announced the Great Commission or something. Now, their answer, of course, is going to be, it's just, they made it all up. Why should we believe the testimony of these people? Well, first of all, uh, the scriptures are self-authenticating, and they're infallible, and they're perfect. And they've proven themselves by the hundreds of prophecies that were written way before the events took place, and... There's no religious book in the world, there's no philosophical book in the world that does this. The Bible does prove its own authenticity. And if you don't accept that the Bible's inspired and infallible, which it itself teaches very explicitly, uh, fine, don't believe it. But we don't have any problem believing ancient histories that have many factual errors. Uh, we don't have any problem uh, reading Shakespeare or, or, or reading... Uh, Greek histories and Roman histories and so forth, and, and the idea, well, if we haven't seen it, if we can't prove it empirically, then we have no reason to believe in the resurrection. Yet people believe in black holes and quasars and all sorts of things that they haven't seen empirically. <clears throat> the proof is in the fact that, A, the Bible is infallible and it's self-authenticating. You don't need to authenticate it. See, this is their thing. Their presupposition is that if we can't authenticate it through secular sources, then we're going to reject it. That's their presupposition. But the Bible is actually totally accurate, and the secular sources are very inaccurate and undependable. If you know anything about ancient histories, they tend to lie and exalt their king, and they lie about battles, and etc. But the Bible is infallible and self-authenticating. And then, of course, the other people that reject it would be... Uh, uh, certain groups of Pentecostals and, and Neoplatonists and Gnostics who believe that the flesh, our physical bodies, is intrinsically evil, and the idea of a physical resurrection to them is gross. And that was the thinking of the Greeks. And so you had early heretical Gnostic groups who denied the resurrection because they thought how disgusting that God would, you know, they thought it'd be better just to be a spirit. And then the final group, this would be number six, the final group that denies the resurrection uh, by implication, is, of course, full preterists. <clears throat> full preterists would admit that Christ rose from the dead, but the, to them it holds no redemptive significance. To them, um, as far as the resurrection of the human body goes, uh, because they believe that the, the resurrection occurred in AD 70, and all that means to them is, is that the souls that were trapped in Hades were let out. 
Okay. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, Paul said, if I die, I'm going to be with Christ right now. And Paul died before AD 70. So this idea that it, it refers to the trapping of people in Hades is nonsense. Well, let's look at the nature of the resurrection. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in the exact same body in which he died. It's a literal bodily resurrection. And that's significant because it's the reason why we believe in a literal bodily resurrection for Christians under eternal life. Something that full preterists deny. <clears throat> he was not a mere ghost or spirit or an apparition of vision or hallucination. And scripture proves this many ways. First, there's the historical fact of the empty tomb. Not only do all the gospel accounts record that the tomb was empty, Matthew 28, 6, Mark 16, 3 to 6, Luke 24, 3, John uh, 25 to 8. They also carefully note that the tomb was examined by Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, James, the apostles James and John. And what did we just read? The angel says, look, come in. Come into the tomb. Look, he's not here. Why did the angel do that? Why was the angel there? He wasn't there to roll away the stone. Jesus didn't need to the stone to be rolled away to get out because he could pass through walls, we'll read later. He, he had a spiritual, he had a real body, but it was a spiritual body. He was there to get the women to go in and to explain what had happened. He is not here. He has risen. Come in, take a look. He's not here. And John's account even notes that Jesus' burial clothes were neatly folded and set aside, John 20, verse 7. God sent angels to roll away the stone, Matthew 28, 2, and announced the resurrection to the witnesses so as to avoid any ambiguity or possible misinterpretation of the empty tomb. Matthew 28, 5, Mark 16, 5 to 6, Luke 24, 4, John 20, verse 12. So this event is so critical to biblical Christianity, God sends an angel to announce it and then say, go, here, take a look. The tomb's empty. See the clothes folded there? He's not here. He's risen. Now, if an angel didn't do that, somebody might think, well, maybe, he, maybe his body was stolen. Of course, he's going to appear to him anyway. Indeed, the whole purpose of the angel rolling away the huge stone was not to let Jesus out with his new resurrected body. He could pass through walls, John 20, 19 to 26, but to let the disciples in to see for themselves the empty tomb. God wanted eyewitnesses. And we have an infallible, inspired record of the resurrection in Scripture. These knuckleheads, these atheists. So, well, how do we know? To, you know, how do we know that the resurrection occurred? We don't have any independent uh, pagan witnesses. Who cares? We have something better than that. We have the more sure word of the Word of God that's infallible and inspired, and it's self-authenticating. They failed to take that into account. Daniel prophesied every successive empire all the way to the death of Christ before it happened. And it's so accurate and it's so perfect that modernists say, well, that had to be written after these empires came into being. It couldn't have been written by Daniel. And then the problem is, is they, find, they found really old copies of Daniel. Second, the physical reality of Jesus' resurrection is noted in the gospel accounts by the fact that our Lord was recognized as a real person by his face and his voice. Matthew 28, 9, Luke 24, 31, John 20, 16, 19, 20, and 21, 12. The gospel narratives eliminate all possibility that Jesus was a disembodied spirit when they speak of Christ being held, Matthew 28, 9, hugged, John 20, 17, and touched, John 20, uh, 27. That's important. 
Neoplatonists say it was he was just a ghost. He was just a spirit being, like an angel. They don't believe in a literal resurrection. And I know that because many, you know, 30, well, actually it was 40 years ago, I debated a Pentecostal minister who was a Neoplatonist. And they don't, he, he was a minister. He did not believe in a literal resurrection. He said the body's filthy and disgusting. God would never resurrect his body. Well, he was without sin. How could it be filthy and disgusting? He never sinned. He was perfect. And doubting Thomas is even told to place his hand into the wound on our Lord's side, John 20, 27. And further on a number of occasions, Christ broke bread and ate with the disciples. Luke 24, 30, 42, 43, John 21, 12 to 13, and Acts 10, 41. Third, the literal bodily resurrection of Christ is prophesied in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted Psalm 16, 9, 10, in reference to the resurrection of Christ. And he says this, uh, this is Acts 2, 26 to 27, Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in hell, or Hades, the place of the dead, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. His body's not going to rot. Not only does this passage use the word flesh, verse 26, flesh, it specifically says that our Lord's physical body will not rot. Peter says that David, and this is Acts 2, 31-32, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, this God is raised, Jesus God is raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And Peter shuts out all evasion and mistake by repeating the, uh, the prophecy in question and applying them to Christ very clearly. Fourth, the risen Messiah told his disciples in plain language that he had a real flesh and, body, a blood's, uh, flesh and bones body. Luke 24, 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Neoplatonism is a heresy, obviously. Christ had flesh and bones. He had a real body. His body was not in the tomb anymore. And that's important because when Paul discusses the resurrection of Christians in Acts, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruits. Our resurrection is compared to Christ's resurrection. And that's why full preterism is a, is a heresy. I don't mind if we have a disagreement. If we have a disagreement over eschatology, you're premillennial, you're still a Christian. Even though I think premillennialism is wrong and stupid. Charles Spurgeon was a premillennialist. There's some great Christians who are premillennialists. I think Gordon Clark was. But when you start saying that the resurrection of the body doesn't happen, which is what full preterists teach, then you're into the realm of heresy. The causal clause explains why the disciples should have touched Jesus, because in doing so they would have known that only Jesus, that Jesus was not a ghost. Christ presses upon the apostles the reality of his physical body, that he was solid flesh and bone. Jesus demands that they, his hands and feet, be handled and the aorist tense is used, applying that they obeyed his command. Our Lord's statements, appearances, and actions leave absolutely no doubt. Jesus literally rose from the dead, and he rose literally, bodily, with his body. And that's proof that we're going to rise literally, bodily. It's not just a release from Hades in AD 70, which is absurd, because they turned AD 70 into a, some kind of redemptive act, 
You have to understand, when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, the atonement, the vicarious sacrifice was completed. The price was paid. The guilt of sin, the punishment that we all deserve was paid in full. The resurrection is the vindication of it and his conquering of death, physical death. And uh, there's nothing redemptive. Everything that occurs after his resurrection where he's declared Lord, Matthew 28, Romans 1-4, and other passages, Ephesians chapter 1, he's applying redemption to his people. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was merely a judgment upon Israel for rejecting Christ, and it helped the church uh, by no longer could the Jews go to the Roman authorities throughout the Roman Empire and get them to persecute Christians. Now they would do it on their own later because of paganism. But it removed the Jews as a significant factor of persecution of the Jews in the Roman Empire. But it's not a redemptive act in the technical sense of the term. The redemptive, all of the redemptive foundation was completed when Christ rose from the dead. He rose with a glorious body. He rose in the same body in which he was crucified, even maintaining the scars in the hands and side, John 20, 27, which I think God did on purpose so that throughout eternity we would understand and glorify him for what he's done in our behalf. His body had undergone a change. His resurrection was unique. The Bible contains a number of examples who rose from the dead temporarily. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4.32, and 13.21, Matthew 27.53, Mark 5.41, Acts 9.40-41, of course, Lazarus and John 11. All such people, however, went to leave normal lives and then died and were buried. They were restored to life, but they were still mortal. Christ did not rise to a normally earthly sphere of life, but came alive immortal and incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 50, and 53. We learn of the nature of the transformation that occurred in, uh, in Jesus from Paul's discussion of what Christ's resurrection will lead to in the resurrection of believers in 1 Corinthians 15. He speaks of celestial bodies, which are incorporeal, verses 40 and 42. Raised in power, verse 43, a spiritual body, verse 44. The heavenly man, 47 to 49. Immortal, verse 53. Victorious, verse 54. Through the resurrection, Christ became a life-giving spirit, verse 45. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, verse 20. The firstborn of the dead, Colossians 1.18. Although Jesus rose with the same body, which consisted of real flesh and bone, and a spirit, a true human nature, he was remarkably different. His human nature was glorified, imperishable, powerful, and perfect. And full preterists, if they want to answer my stuff against full preterism... They can deal with 1 Corinthians 15 and try to explain it. Because the whole point of Paul teaching on that, some people were denying, they weren't denying that in AD, they weren't denying that people would be led out of Hades, which is what the full preterist has to say. They were denying that there's a literal bodily resurrection. And Paul's whole discussion is, no, no, no. Christ rose as the first fruits, and as he rose, you're going to rise. That's the comparison. And when the Bible discusses our Lord having a spiritual body, and the saints will have a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15, it does not mean that he is somehow immaterial like an angel, but that he has a body perfectly suited to a heavenly, spiritual, eternal environment that is to do all that the Spirit of God wants it to do with unlimited possibilities. 
the theanthropic Christ is able to rule the whole creation from the right hand of God and is a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45, the forerunner and captain of the elect, Hebrews 2.10, and we'll look at this a little bit later. When we talk about spirit, spiritual songs, does that mean the songs are immaterial? It, no, it means they're written and directed by the Holy Spirit. They're controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're in our glorified state, we'll be so controlled by the Spirit of God that we will never be tempted by sin. There will never be another fall. We can never sin. We can only do good. Adam and Eve were created without sin, but they weren't, uh, they weren't in such a state where they could not sin. When you're glorified, you can't sin, and you can't even be tempted, because we're going to have a spiritual body. The uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection body is evident in the gospel narratives. Now, there's instances where he's not immediately recognized, Mark 16, 2, John 20, 15, and 27. This may indicate some change of appearance. It may, however, simply indicate that the disciples were not expecting to see Jesus, or that he did not want to be recognized. If you were in a crowd of people and your, let's say your dad had been dead for 15 years and you saw somebody that looked exactly like your dad, uh, you wouldn't think it was your dad. And that's probably what happened with Christ. They just, they didn't believe he was alive. The resurrected Christ on occasion would appear suddenly and vanish in a supernatural manner. Luke 24, 31 and 36. He would also could appear surrounded by bright light. Acts 9, 3. The Apostle John described his countenance as the shun signing in its strength. Revelation one sixteen. Our Lord could also uh, appear suddenly in a room that had the doors closed. John twenty nineteen. Although Jesus had a glorified, real human body and soul, his human nature, he's not omnipresent in, according to his human nature. He is not impeded by solid objects like walls or doors. All of these mysteries and miraculous elements, together with the miraculous ascension, show that Jesus' body, though consisting of flesh and bones, was now in a glorified condition and capable of acting independently of the laws of time and space. This does not imply that he was beyond time and space, for this would mean the annihilation of his true humanity. Now, this is where I just have to bring up Lutheranism very quickly. Lutheranism teaches a heresy regarding Christ that the human body assumed the properties of divinity. Uh, and that's related to their view of the Lord's Supper of consubstantiation, that the true elements of his human body are in the bread, in, under, and within the bread and wine. They believe it's kind of a compromise between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, which they believe it, it's really his flesh really his blood. And the, the Luther says, no, 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 that's, it's not literally, but his, the elements of real humanity, real flesh, real blood are in the water. So they attribute uh, omnipresence to the human nature of Christ, which is a heresy. That's wrong. That's why we reject that view of the Lord's Supper. And Luther just made it up. He was trying to compromise. Calvin tried to get Luther over to his position, and Calvin said, his view is kind of bizarre, that you're transported mystically, spiritually, to the throne room where Christ is literally, his physical body is. Christ can be spiritually present with all of us, because he's God, obviously. But we can't be in his physical presence everywhere, in every church, all over the world on Sunday. That's just impossible. But he can be spiritually present. And that's Zwingli's view, and that's the biblical view.
Now, important circumstances surrounding the resurrection. First, there's a great earthquake, 20, Matthew 28, 2. Earthquakes are associated in the Word of God with God's special presence, the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19:18, Jehovah's wrath and judgment against sin, Isaiah 29, 6, and Revelation 6, 12, and 8, 5, and 11, 13, and 19, 16, 18. The deliverance of Christ's people from death, uh, Matthew 27, 51 to 52. A certain amount of bodies were let out of the tombs of the saints when Christ rose, and there was a great earthquake that opened them up. And, of course, persecution, Acts 16, 26. There was an earthquake that opened the door. The guard fell down as a dead man in Peter, and they walked out. Actually, Paul, I think it was Paul and Silas. Jesus rose as a mighty king, ready to make war upon those who killed him, cast aside his law, and continued to perse persecute his people. Here's a great quote from a wonderful Dutch theologian. Willemus Abrakel writes, <coughs> quote, The earth shook again at the resurrection, which was not only a proof of his divinity, but also of the wrath of God against the Jews and their land, which would be destroyed and left destitute. The inhabitants would perish miserably, and the religion would be taken from them and be transferred to the Gentiles. It also indicated that all temporal ceremonies are now terminated, and that an integral religion, unchangeable religion, had taken its place. I, I, I'm the language of Jesus himself, the change of kingdom, the kingdom. And that's another area where full preterism is a heresy. They say that things end in AD 70. No, they end with the death and resurrection of Christ. There's nothing significant about AD 70 other than God uh, crushing uh, the apostate Jews for this temporal deliverance of the church. Number three, Christ rose from the dead on the third day. Jesus prophesied to the Jews saying, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, John 2.19. The third day was on our Lord's mind and it was part of his message to the disciples. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 8. 31, 9.31, 10.34, and then the parallels in uh, Matthew 16.21, 17.23, 20.19, 9.22, and 18.33, etc. So in the biblical record, the history of the third day resurrection is prominent. Luke 24.46, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Describing the essence of the gospel, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And there's other passages. And then, of course, the Apostles' Creed, A.D. 325, the third day he rose from the dead. Why the third day? Why, why is there a significance to the third day? What's the point? Well, a reading of the Old Testament does reveal a three-day motif in Israel's salvation history. Genesis 22.4, we read, Then in the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place of sacrifice afar off. After three days without water in the wilderness, God gives Israel water that gives life. Exodus 15.22 and following. In Exodus 19, Jehovah makes his appearance on the third day, verses, uh, verses 10, 11, 15, 16, to give the covenant nation the law for personal sanctification and godly dominion. Hosea 6.2 says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So there's a pattern of three days. Number four. All gospel accounts note that our Lord rose from the dead on the eighth day, the first day of the week. 
uh, Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, John 21, also Book of Revelation, also Galatians. Also, Jesus, in his post-resurrection appearances, presented himself disciples on the first day of the week. Matthew 28, 9, Luke 24, 15 to 31 and 36, John 20, 19 and 26. So why did Jesus choose the first day of the week to rise from the dead, the third day? Why? Nothing's arbitrary here. There's got to be a reason. Well, the first day resurrection was anticipated throughout the Old Testament. The first day points to recreation and redemption. Under the old economy, the children of believers were to be circumcised on the eighth day. What is the eighth day? It's the first day of the week. Genesis 18.12, for the first day of the second week of the newborn baby's life. Circumcision was a sign and seal of the new birth or regeneration. Ezekiel 11.19, 36.26, Colossians 2.11. From subsequent revelation, we know that union with Christ in his first day resurrection is a foundation of regeneration. Ephesians 2.5 and Romans 6.4 and following. Further, the eighth day was the day of dedication of the firstborn son and Jesus Christ as the firstborn of the firstfruits of all who believe. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Paul calls our Lord the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29, see Hebrews, compare Hebrews 12.23. The eighth day was also the day of cleansing from defilement. Leviticus 14.10, 15.14, and 29. The ritual pointed to the fact that union with Christ in his first day resident breaks the power of sin over believers. Romans 6.4-5 and 1 John 2.29. There's also the typology of Noah and his family. How many people were on the ark? Eight people. The new creation, the new humanity. He is called the firstborn of all creation. The beginning, the firstborn, the firstborn child from the dead. Colossians 1, 15 and 18. In Christ's resurrection, there is a restoration of the whole created order. And then five, Jesus rose from the dead in the spring of the year, only a few days after, before, after Passover. What is the spring? Well, it's a time when the seeds sprout, the plants turn green and bloom. Animals, most, many animals give birth, like birds and so forth. And the day progressively overtakes the night. It is a, a time of abundant life and great joy. And then sixth, the exodus of Israel from Egypt immediately after the Passover was a type of Christ's resurrection. During the Passover, it was the sacrificial blood of a spotless lamb placed on the lintel in the two doorposts that saved the firstborn of Israel. Exodus 20, excuse me, Exodus 12, 21 to 23. The firstborn. Without the blood which pointed to Christ, remember, it was of a clean lamb. Without the blood, the firstborn died. So all the firstborn of Egypt, all the heathen died. Their firstborn child and also the animals died, by the way. So Pharaoh's firstborn son died. If he had faith in Yahweh, if he had faith in the Messiah to come, what'd you do? You sacrifice that spotless lamb that symbolized Christ, and you splash that blood on the top of the door and on the sides of the door. They were set free from bondage to receive the law and serve God as kings and priests of his kingdom. So in Christ's Christ, Christ resurrection, the covenant people are set free from death, slavery to sin and bondage of Satan to serve the living and true God. 1 Corinthians 15, 57-58 But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my loved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then the resurrection of Christ was an act of the triune God. 
It occurred as a result of his own power, no less than that of the Father and the Spirit. This point is important because, number one, there are many cults that deny Christ through, through his own power because they deny the divinity of Jesus. Many damnable sects must of logical necessity deny that our Lord caused his own resurrection. Number two, the fact that our Lord was not passive in his own resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt his own divinity. And number three, the Bible emphasizes that Christ himself achieved a victory over death and hell. If Jesus did not cause his own resurrection, then he could not be said to be an active victor, the very fountain and author of life. It's very important. And once again, this is why I say full preterism is a heresy, because they deny this aspect of salvation. Adam died, spiritually, the day he ate the fruit. And that led to him to age and then die physically. And that is why the sacrificial victim had to be slain. The atonement, the essence of the atonement is suffering, paying the penalty, and death, the ultimate penalty for sin. He paid the penalty, he conquered death, he walks out victorious. That Jesus was alive by his own power is evident from the following passages. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. I will raise it up. John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he will. Jesus ascribes to himself the identical power and ability as the Father. John 10.17-18, Therefore the, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Our Lord could not have been any clearer he can and will raise himself up. And Jesus said to her, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. So don't doubt the physical resurrection, the full preterist contention that the resurrection passages for believers all refer to getting out, getting out of Hades in AD 70 is absolute, a lie, heretical nonsense. Christ is not merely a conduit of salvation, but the very foundation of salvation in resurrection life. It was necessary that he would resurrect himself, for the surety who took the suffering upon himself would also have to triumph over it. He had to conquer death, death itself, physical death, spiritual death. If someone else had resurrected him, he would have neither have triumphed over death nor delivered himself and consequently would not be able to deliver others also. That is why all of our faith for salvation we direct directly to Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures. You want your sins removed? You have to go to Christ. You have to believe in Christ. You want that guilt paid for? You want that penalty removed? Christ endured the penalty in your place. You have to believe that. Your sins are washed away by the precious blood of Christ. They're blotted out. They're cast away. <coughs> and he conquered death itself. Salvation is for the whole man, body and soul. The resurrection of the body is a crucial aspect of the doctrine of salvation. Jesus is the resurrection and the life in person. The full blessed life of God. All of his glory, glorious attributes, omniscience, wisdom, omnipotence, love, holiness, etc. As such, he is also the cause, source, or fountain of the believer's glorious resurrection and of their everlasting life. Since the Bible emphasizes that Jesus rose through his own power, why then is the resurrection also frequently ascribed to the power of God? 
Acts 2.24, 32, 3.26, 5.30, 1 Corinthians 6.14, Ephesians 1, 2, or the Father. Romans 6.4, Galatians 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 3. The answer is found in the biblical fact that whatever the Father does, the Son does. Whatever the Son does, the Father does. And I don't have time to go into a dissertation about the Trinity. But they're not separate individuals. They're three persons in one Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and the same God. Each person of the Godhead is operative in the works of the other. But there is a popular reason why it is ascribed to the Father on account of the obligation which Christ took upon himself from which he ought to be released by the Father as judge who as he had delivered up Christ to death for our sins, so he ought also to raise him up again for our justification in order to testify that a full satisfaction has been made. The Father offered up Jesus, but Jesus offered up himself. He's called the high, It's very clear in the book of Hebrews. The Father rose Jesus from the dead. There's, another, there's passages I should have brought in here about the Spirit raising up Jesus. And Jesus rose himself from the dead. Destroy this body. We just read it in our scripture reading today. Destroy this body. Three days I will raise it up. Excuse me, temple. Destroy this temple. They thought he was going to destroy the temple. How could you do that? And then the apostles, after he rose from the dead, understood he was speaking of the resurrection. Well, let's look at the benefits of Christ's resurrection. Briefly, I know we're being quick here. Uh, the benefits and fruits that result from our Lord's resurrection are best understood from two per different perspectives that are intimately related. Number one, the resurrection is a vindication, victory, and exaltation of the persecuted, humiliated, tortured, and murdered divine human Messiah. Two, the victory of the resurrection has broad implications. It is a victory for the church and even the whole created order. What Christ did, he did in behalf of his people. He didn't have to come to earth. He was sinless. He, he didn't have to come to earth. He didn't have to assume human nature. He did it for us. The resurrection is not a private act that simply vindicates Jesus, but a redemptive act that gives resurrection life to all who believe. So let's look at his vindication and exaltation first. The resurrection of our Lord is a vindication of his person and work as well as the beginning of his exaltation. The resurrection is not only God's stamp of approval to everything Jesus said and did, his atoning death, it is also the starting point of a whole new phase of Jesus' ministry. The humble, suffering servant is now the exalted, conquering king. While it's true that our Lord's foundational redemptive work is completed, remember on the cross, it is finished. And then he gave up the ghost. His perfect sinless life and sacrificial death, Jesus in his exalted state as prophet, priest, and king is very active at the right hand of God in the application of redemption, the intercession for his people, and the judging of his enemies, and the enemies of his bride, the church. And there are a number of areas regarding our Lord's vindication and exaltation that need to be considered. Note well that Christ was well aware of his, this vindication and exaltation before the crucifixion. And he indeed he emphasized it in his teaching ministry. When his disciples, uh, many disciples had a very difficult time with Jesus' doctrine and were even complaining about his teaching, our Lord mentioned the, the ascension, John 17, 5. Our Lord often directed the disciples' attention to his vindication when he was discussing the coming judgment. Uh, Mark 8.38 For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. 
And Jesus told the high priest at his trial, Mark 14.62, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Christ made it very clear that as the exalted king, he would return in judgment to destroy the nation that rejected him and persecuted his church. Matthew 24, 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And Jesus often also discussed his central role as judge in the final judgment, Matthew 7, 22 to 23, 25, 31, Luke 13, 27 and following, John 5, 25, 29. God has given him authority to execute judgment. Also, this is John 5, 27, because he is the Son of Man. He is set, he will set as the exalt, sit as the exalted king on the throne of his glory, Matthew 25, 30, judge all nations. And God has taken the Messiah who is despised and rejected of men, Isaiah 53, 3, who is unjustly prosecuted and murdered by evil men, John 18, 23, and made him king and judge. The defendant has become the king, the judge, and the executioner. The tables have been turned. So all history. Now I know that the some monks, I guess back in the Middle Ages, divided all of history, you know, before Christ's birth and after Christ's birth. But really all of history should be before the resurrection of Christ and after the resurrection of Christ. And throughout the New Testament, the end of the Jewish the Jewish era of the church is called the end of the ages or the end of the age. Now we're in the new covenant age. All of history, all of human history is divided between the resurrection of Christ before and after. And, and uh, you see how pagan our culture has become. Universities now and all these people, they don't use B.C. and A.D. Uh, now they use the common era. They despise God so much. They despise and spit on the Bible so much they got rid of B.C. and A.D. in our universities. But I, if, in a truly biblical Christian culture, it would really, year one would be the year of his resurrection, which would probably be around 30 A.D. Two, the vindication and exaltation of Christ is emphasized in apostolic preaching. When Peter preached to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, he connected Christ's resurrection to his exaltation and heavenly rule, Acts 2.32-33. After quoting Psalm 110.1, the most quoted verse in the whole New Testament, which speaks of the enthronement of the Messiah, Acts 2.34-35, he said, this is verse 36, let, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter, in essence, is saying this, The very one humiliated, rejected, and murdered, God is exalted and made Lord over all. The you killed him, but God raised him up theme is prominent in the book of Acts. Note Peter's second sermon. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's Barabbas. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God, Jesus, raised from the dead, of whom we are all witnesses. Acts 3, 14-15. When Peter and the other apostles were commanded by the Jewish council not to teach the gospel, they responded by saying, Acts 5, 30-31, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Man, these guys had a lot of guts. You know why? They were filled with the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. Before, before Pentecost, they're cowering in fear of being, murder, of being persecuted. After Pentecost, they boldly preached the gospel. After severely rebuking the Jews as betrayers and murderers of Christ, Stephen said, 
Acts 7, 56. Look! I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what do they do? They, they got angry and they stoned him to death. That our Lord is at God's right hand refers to the fact that Jesus has been given the prominent place of honor and power in the whole universe. The Jews emphatically said, no, but God says to the Savior, yes and amen. And Peter continued this theme when he introduced the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 10, 39 to 40 and 42. Jesus, whom they, the Jews, killed by hanging on a tree, him God raised up on the third day, showing him and showed him openly. It is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And then years later, Paul preached the identical message at Athens, Acts 17.31. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this to all men by raising him from the dead. For Paul, the first act of exaltation, the resurrection, is proof positive that Jesus will judge the whole world. The historical climax of Christ's exaltation. It's a personal judgment. You study the judgment. It's a personal judgment. Christ is sitting on his throne. It's not the heretical nonsense of the full preterist, where it just refers to people getting led out of Hades in AD 70. Number three. The vindication and exaltation of Jesus is an essential aspect of New Testament theology. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The word designated, uh, translated declared, horisthentos, is better translated as appointed, constituted, or designated. The Apostle says that at the resurrection, the incarnate Son, the Theanthropic Mediator, is appointed the Son of God with power. Now, obviously, as God, he always has all power and authority. But this is both is, uh, the Theanthropic Mediator, now his human nature. In his human nature, Jesus rules the whole universe. He has full authority. In other words, our Lord enters a new phase of his ministry. He has gone from the suffering servant to a position of supreme power and exaltation. And this teaching reflects the statement of Jesus, Matthew 27, uh, 28, 18, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Paul says the exaltation of Christ is the reward for his redemptive obedience. Jesus made himself of no reputation. This is Philippians 2, 7 to 11. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, these atheists on YouTube, Hutchins or whatever their name, I forget the guy's name, there's a couple of really popular ones, and they get millions of views who speak of the God of the Bible as evil and slam Christianity as foolish and stupid and everything. Of course, if they all evolve from pond scum, uh, everything they say is insignificant and worthless anyway. So it doesn't really matter what they say. They might as well go out and be a child molester. It doesn't matter. There are no ethics if God, if God didn't create the universe. But we have proof that they're liars. And Christ will judge those people. And Paul says... Now, they didn't acknowledge Christ as Lord during their life. When are they going to bow the knee to Christ? If every knee is going to bow, 
of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, that means people in hell, if they're going to bow the knee to Christ, when are they going to do it? The day of judgment. They'll be forced to bow and assume the posture of a rug before the brightness of Christ, the exalted king. In the incarnation, our Lord, figuratively speaking, descended a staircase of degradation and progressive humiliation and suffering, which culminated in the cross. In the resurrection, where Jesus achieved a definitive victory, one discovers the starting point or beginning of an ever-present exaltation. Ephesians 1, 20-22, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, in behalf of the church. Such language not only witnesses a defendant whose cause has been vindicated, it is a language of enthronement, drawing especially from such royal psalms as 2 and 110. Jesus is the messianic king. More than that, he is Lord over all, the Son of God in power, now and forever at God's right hand. And the vindication and exaltation theme is not limited to Paul. Peter urges Christians to be holy because God is holy. 1 Peter 1.16 Jesus redeemed the church with his own precious blood. 1 Peter uh, 1.18-20 God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1.21 And the author of Hebrews says, this is 1.3, When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In C10.12 The book of Hebrews emphasizes Christ's role as a high priest at God's right hand who intercedes for the church in his heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews 5, 6, and 10, 6, 20, 7, 3, and 17, 21, especially 8, 1, and 2. Jesus who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Um, Revelation 118. As the message of prophecy of the Ascended Lord unfolds, the fact that not only Jesus is open, able to open the sevenfold scroll is noted. Nobody else could open it. Only he could open it. No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth is worthy or able to unfold the contents. Revelation 5, 3-4, except the lamb, as though it had been slain. 5, 6, the man who was rejected, tortured, murdered, is now the white horse rider. 6, 2, and 19, 11, the victor. 19, 21, and judge. 20, 11, and following. Who will crush all of his opposition and the opposition of his church. He will rule until he has put all enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and we'll, we'll have to end there for the sake of time. Um, so I hope you see Christ came the suffering servant born of a virgin born in a manger very humble around 4 BC to parents who were so poor they offered a pigeon they couldn't afford a lamb they had to buy a pigeon they were poor now they got money from the, 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 the wise men who came and they got gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that was that, that was enough to provide them with money to go to Egypt and hide out until the children uh, in Bethlehem uh, were slain and all that. And then they resettled uh, north of Galilee just to be safe in Nazareth. And he was raised in Nazareth. <clears throat> a life of humiliation. But he lived a perfect sinless life on our behalf as, as the divine human mediator, earning eternal life for us. Adam failed. Adam did not keep the covenant of works. He did not obey the law, moral law, in exhaustive detail. Christ did. And he died a expiatory blood sacrifice on the cross, washing away your sin and guilt, paying the penalty in full 
vicarious sacrifice. That means he died in the place of his people. He died in the place of his sheep. He died in the place of the elect. A definite atonement. If he died for you, you will become a Christian. Total humiliation. Forsaken by his disciples. Rejected by his own people. Lied at in court. Beaten. Spit upon. Tortured. Crucified. Dead. Buried. Three days in the tomb. That's humiliation. But now, salvation's complete. He comes out of the tomb victorious over Satan's sin and death. He conquered death. We don't have to fear the grave. It's not, you know, if you've ever seen a dead body, it's disgusting. It's gross. It rots. It turns all different colors and is, is bloated and disgusting. And it turns into dust. It's not a, a wonderful prospect. One of my best friends died about a month ago of cancer from high school. He was not a Christian. He was a pothead. Great guitar player. One of the best guitar players I've ever seen. But he's dead. It's a terrible thing. You die. You're, you rot. But we don't have to fear that. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He justifies the elect. And we will get glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, Philippians, many passages. Don't believe full preterist heresy. It's nonsense. They turn AD 70 into some redemptive act. It's not a redemptive act. It's a judgment. It's a temporal help. It's a judgment upon the Jews. Everything redemptive goes back to the cross and the empty tomb. Now, Christ is at the right hand of God, victorious. He's applying redemption in history. If you're a Christian, it's because Christ himself sent the Holy Spirit into your heart and regenerated your heart and enabled you to believe and enabled you to repent. Faith is a gift. Ephesians, I think it's 2, 8, and 9. And also there's other passages. And of course, repentance is a gift. Who grants repentance? We just read it in the book of Acts. Christ does. He's in charge of repentance. He's in charge of regeneration. He's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit into the church. So he's very active. The foundation is done. Now he's glorified. But as a high priest, he's applying redemption in history. So remember the importance of the resurrection. I have more to say, but we'll have to do it another time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Christ. We know that because he died and rose, we shall rise bodily, literally. Yes, when we die, our souls go immediately to be with Christ. But Christ died for the whole person, not just the soul, but also the body. We're not Neoplatonists. We're not full preterists. We reject heresy. We trust in your son. We trust in his death. We trust in his resurrection. And we glorify your son. We bless his holy name for what he's done. For we are unworthy. But due to your grace and mercy, you sent your dear son. And he has saved us from our sins. And he has given us the gift of eternal life. He has earned eternal life through his righteousness. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of the one. The righteousness of another. Not our righteousness. For we're filthy, rotten sinners. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.